everyone, I'm Taffney Hopper, and you're listening to Talking Nonprofits, a podcast about the world of nonprofits. Follow along so you too can learn how to make a difference in your community. Today, our guest is Dr. Sandra Bram, President and CEO of Gulf Coast JFCS. Here's a glimpse of Dr. Bram's bio. Dr. Brown brings more than 20 years of leadership experiences in the not-for-profit sector. Before coming to Gulf Coast JFCS, she spent 25 years in El Paso, where I originally met her, where she served for 10 years as the CEO of the YWCA El Paso, their Narte region. Dr. Bram also served as the Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Studies and Assistant Vice President for Outreach Programs of the University of Texas El Paso. At UTEP, she secured more than $20 million in federal grants and developed programs to support low-income youth access, enrollment, and success in higher education. Dr. Brown was named the 2018 Businesswoman of the Year by the Tampa Bay Business Journal. In January 2019, she was honored by the Academy Prep Center of St. Petersburg as one of its five fabulous females. And the Greater Tampa Chamber of Commerce named her their 2019 Dottie Berger McKinnon Woman of Influence. Dr. Brown recently completed the third draft of her memoir, Loves to Golf, and is a native of St. Louis, Missouri. She has three adult children, and she and her husband, Eric, reside in Clearwater, Florida. Dr. Sam Brown was appointed the president and CEO of Gulf Coast JFCS in March 2016. Gulf Coast JFCS is amongst the largest Jewish family service center in the United States. That is an impressive, remarkable bio. How did you accomplish all that? I mean, with the grace of God, let's start with that. How about that? <laughs> and that's just a snippet audience. That's just a snippet of her bio. I keep pretty busy, that's for sure. Let's go on and talk about your success in with the Gulf Coast JFCS. It's inspired by Jewish values, reprotect the vulnerable, empower individuals, and strengthen families. Tell us how your organization accomplishes that mission. Well, this is a wonderful organization that really started out uh, as a grassroots organization some uh, 60 years ago, established in the Jewish community in Pinellas County, Florida. Uh, and we began as a organization providing counseling services and supportive services to the Jewish community. However, over the years, uh, we grew. And in, in the 70s, the state of Florida began to privatize lots of its programs. And our agency, uh, saw the opportunity through incorporation to begin to expand its services. So we were incorporated in 1974 and began to grow rapidly. And so since that time, we now have some 40 plus cost centers, but they all fall into, I would say five basic categories. We uh, of course have remained true to our, our foundation. And that is we provide support for Jewish uh, families who are in need. Um, and it's a small population here in Pinellas County, but um, you know, we have a great partnership with our local federation and the synagogues and temples to do that. So we do Jewish family services. We support about 250 Holocaust survivors. 
in the Tampa Bay region. We have Employment Services, a very unique program where we're supporting uh, non-custodial parents and refugees in obtaining employment uh, for sustainability, foster care, adoption, child welfare, keeping children safe at home. Um, as I said, we resettle refugees from around the world. Uh, we have elder services and residential facilities for low-income seniors. We do uh, mental behavioral health services and we have some residential treatment uh, centers. And we are very excited about our newest initiative, which uh, was just announced by the St. Petersburg Police Department. They are embarking up on a new initiative in response to protests and really calls to defund the police, which of course we know is a, a misnomer. We need police. But what they did is instead of hiring more police officers, uh, they decided to create a new program, Community Assistance Liaison. And they did an RFP. And because of our broad experiences in mental health, child welfare, uh, supporting individuals and families in poverty, we were able to successfully gain that bid. So uh, once the city council signs off in January, we will hire a team of navigators who will embed with the police for training the first couple of months. And then we will be responding to non-emergency calls, working in the community and making sure that families have the support that they need, that we're not you know, wasting police time on nonviolent calls, and that if there are needs to Baker Act or do those uh, types of, of services to ensure that, that individuals are getting the help that they need, uh, we're credentialed and experienced uh, to do that. Wow. So you guys are partnering up with police. That that's fabulous. And and that's that's gonna be is that is that the first in the nation at this time? Uh, or? There are a, a few programs that are doing it in the country. Uh, we are, I believe we are the first in Florida to be doing it. So all eyes are on us. We also have some 515 employees currently. We're uh, supporting folks in 40 Florida counties. And we also, of course, support children in foster care wherever they are providing case management. So you're providing care for the most vulnerable across every gamut. That's exactly a great way to look at it. I mean, we uh, we partner with what well, we call it like the, the, the juvenile welfare board here, children's board. These are tax entities uh, that provide support to families with children under the age of 18 uh, and school age children. And so we provide emergency financial assistance. So families, they can't pay their electric bill. We have agreements with Duke Energy and United Way. I mean, it is really a wraparound. Uh, you say, how do we achieve our mission? That's how we're doing it. And it's not just us with ourselves, but that's a great aspect of what we do is that we're able to wrap our arms around so many different needs. If you need food, we have a small food bank. You know, you need a clothing, you need, you know, your car repaired to get your kid to school, to go to work, you know, uh, depending on where you are and your eligibility, then we can provide some emergency assistance to, to help with that. And then we partner with a host of other organizations as well. What are some obstacles that you face with the organization and how did you overcome them? Well, I think uh, in the nonprofit sector, 
increasingly it's it's difficult to hire. And so turnover, especially in these difficult fields like child welfare, um, whether it's here or across the nation, case management is hard. It's a 24 seven job, you know, the staff are on call. So we have really had to work hard to provide incentives to retain our child welfare staff. So uh, working to, to find ways to improve the work environment, the conditions in which they work to support our staff and to ensure that uh, the funders are aware of these challenges and that we're able to collectively address them. Another thing was really learning the deeper culture you know, of the Jewish community. Coming from El Paso, of course, you know, I say, well, some of my best friends are Jewish. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, it doesn't matter how many seders you've attended or how many friends you have who may be Jewish. When you are leading an organization that's rooted in Jewish values, just learning the deeper aspect of what it means to be Jewish and the Jewish values. And I'm so thankful because my board has been super supportive not only have they supported my participation in Jewish leadership programs, which has been amazing. Um, you know, I remember being, you know, at the YWCA and it's like the Young Women's Christian Association. Of course, we know it's not a Christian organization mm -hmm. in the U.S. It is in the world, but it's like you can't proselytize. You know, you can't do that, even though it has Christian in its name. Yes. Well, here... Gulf Coast Jewish Family and Community Services, JFCS, is not religious, but in participating in some of the community leadership programs through the Federation, you know, I was like, wow, you mean I get to read the Bible? Because maybe we're reading the Torah, you know, as far as leadership, uh, leadership experiences, looking at the leadership experiences of Moses and putting those into current day, you know, life. So it's really um, so in addition to supporting my growth through uh, participating in these leadership programs, they also sponsored me uh, for a 10-day trip to Israel. And I have to tell you, that was life-changing. And not only was it life-changing, I grew so much um, through that process and really understood, you know, maybe what my, what my, challenge, what my challenge was, and that is, if you know who I am, you know how open I am. But I can I can also be very intense, and um, and and being intense, you know, I don't lead with my personal story. You have to get to know me. I have to establish trust. And what I find in working alongside uh, the Jewish community is they're very. It's a very tight knit community. The families know one another. They understand the challenges that one another uh, faces. You know, they want to know, you know, how is your aunt doing and how is your daughter doing? And it really helped me to relax into this. You're not always under a microscope and being scrutinized. People just want to know how you're doing because they care about you. And so, so it's really been a, a very nice transition. Yeah. What are some goals? I know COVID probably changed some of your goals, but what are some of the goals for the coming year for your organization? We recently uh, completed, just before COVID hit, we were putting the final touches on a new 
uh, three-year strategic plan. And so uh, COVID didn't really change that strategic plan, uh, but it really uh, helped us to focus. And uh, there's a heavy emphasis on fund development. And so we created a new high level vice president position of fund development. And I was able to hire a highly qualified uh, fund development uh, leader. And she is just dynamic uh, with tremendous experience. So we've, we're focusing on that platform and how we engage our donors and how we reach our donors. And um, another uh, priority is smart growth. And so we uh, have set a goal intentionally. When we think about smart growth, we're, we're not just going after programs and funds for the sake of chasing a dollar. It's got to fit within a framework. And so one of the things I think that's unique about that smart growth is we've set a goal to intentionally acquire smaller nonprofits that have uh, alignment with our values. And what's interesting is, you know, this is not something that we're gonna, we, we can probably only do one of these every 18 months or so. And we wouldn't want to do more than that, but we acquired uh, one organization uh, last year and we're in the process of acquiring a new organization um, as we speak, and we've gone through all of the due diligence. But what we found is, you know, this is this is really what major uh, philanthropists are asking nonprofits to do. You've got so many small nonprofits that are hard to sustain themselves, and they can't grow further than where they are. But there's so much need, and if you can find a way. Uh, to join a larger nonprofit and be acquired and basically become a program of that entity, then it's a win-win situation because the entity, in our case, because of our size, we're able to leverage our capacity to go after larger grants, to go after uh, partnerships with major foundations, whereas these small nonprofits, um, if your whole budget is $250,000, no one's going to probably give you, you know, $100,000 to move to the next level. But if you're a part of a, you know, $38 million organization, then they know that we have the capacity uh, to, to carry that out. So. Well, that sounds like a great plan to, to help. And it still helps others. It's mm -hmm. helping the community. Yes, you aren't on your own, but you're partnering with another agency that can help fund a community that you are helping as well. Uh, you know, the small nonprofits, you know, they've been, they were founded by uh, people who had a goal and a passion, but as they age, you know, you don't want the work to die because you need to retire or you just can't do it anymore. And so it's important uh, that you can either be acquired or partner with an entity that can help you. Uh, to achieve those goals. So I remember you mentioned about turnover of staff, but brag on your team. Tell me something uh, about your team and something that your team needs to, to enhance. I have an incredible team. I am very excited. They are highly qualified. They are sharp. Uh, they're creative, they're innovative, they work well together. None of them shy away from challenges or new work. 
course, one of the newest members of my team. I, I stole from El Paso. Uh, and recruited. I think I know her. her what, was, what was her name? I, I, she was with y, the YWCA, right? Elkie Cummings. Elkie yeah. Cummings. And I, so I saw doing, that. And the timing couldn't be more perfect there because we also uh, just recently uh, received a large, uh, well, I, it is a large contract with the Office of Refugee Resettlement to work with minors who are in, entering the, the country unaccompanied. And um, that also is coming under her, her supervision as well, in addition to some of the other stuff that um, reports up uh, through her uh, as a vice president. So it's exciting. Oh, yes. but anyway, so they're all that. No, 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 no that's great that you- talented. Yeah, recruited uh, somebody we, from we your- are all working on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it doesn't matter how much training I've had, how much- you know, others on the team have had, it's not enough uh, in order for us to do a good job of really addressing what we're seeing in the communities that we're serving and the needs of, of in, in this area of equity and inclusion and, and with, uh, with all the things that have happened nationally with, with uh, uh, the deaths that we've seen uh, the the inequities with with COVID, the health disparities that have come to the forefront. Uh, we are working with our whole workforce to uh, train them on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's very intentional. And our board has embarked upon an effort to uh, become more diversified, even amongst themselves. So we, as an agency, are tackling. Uh, this growth. We, we acknowledge we're not there. We have a long way to go, but we are intentionally and thoughtfully uh, training our staff and, and providing opportunities for them to grow. Well, speaking of diversity, we don't see a lot of African-American women like yourself to be in charge of a super large nonprofit like Gulf Coast JFCS. How has being an African-American impacted your role as a nonprofit leader? Wow, that's a great question. Um, in moving to Florida um, and attending nonprofit leadership conferences, I've met other African-American uh, leaders of nonprofits, and we established a sort of supportive network, for lack of a better description. We have found... Uh, that there are opportunities to, to share experiences. And, and I found myself in a mentor role or in a coaching role in some respects uh, because of, of my experiences with larger organizations. And, you know, there are bridges to be built. And oftentimes, you know, African-Americans are struggling uh, with boards that are overwhelmingly white and may not understand you know, the experience of that African-American leader and how, how we hear things, how we experience things. So it's a two-way conversation for sure. And so I found myself trying to help develop, you know, more strength to, to talk about this with, with boards, but also to encourage uh, my colleagues who are African-American to, to build a bridge to that conversation. 
it's something that the philanthropic community is looking at now. Uh, there is a recognition that African-American leaders in many cases of nonprofits may be higher credentialed, you know, than their counterparts who are leading uh, similar organizations or even smaller or larger organizations. And so people are coming to terms with, or at least having the conversation around, you know, how can we possibly, how can we support African-American leaders who overwhelmingly are serving communities that are people of color, but the boards don't look, you know, like uh, that community in some cases. And you have funders who are asking the question, how do we do a better job of not imposing our will on some of the smaller not-for-profits? Because you have small nonprofits that are working in the community and funders are asking, well, I want to know, you know, this is a proven strategy or that this is a researched, research-based, you know, program. And, you know, these small nonprofits that may be led by African-American leaders are doing great work and they're experiencing success, but they can't explain that in some research-based strategy. So I think that, that these are the conversations that are happening among philanthropists is how do we support the work that's being done and not expect African-American leaders of these nonprofits that are overwhelmingly serving in communities of color to do what we think is best. I mean, they are living it and working side by side with the families. How do we support what they're doing and not tell them what we think should, they should be doing? It's, um, it's, it's a conversation that is important and that is increasingly um, happening and that is evolving. And so I think I've been in a unique role to sort of be on both sides of that fence, to, to work alongside leaders and funders who are Caucasian and also speaking as a Black woman and what that feels like. Um, but also encouraging my counterparts who are leading uh, smaller organizations, but who have struggled to get support from funders to navigate those uh, discussions. We recently, we being uh, a group of leaders of color, were asked by our community foundation, just recommended that we all get together because half of us don't even know each other. And so they're like, here's the list of all of you guys who went through this program. We think on the heel of this uprising and awakening that maybe you guys should just talk. And it's not something that we need to be a part of, but they gave us the space to really have a conversation amongst each other. And we recently completed a paper uh, that we are fine tuning to share with the community foundation about what we think African-American leaders need support wise and what what they can do, what types of programming uh, funders can do to support the development of leaders of color. Wow, thank you for answering that question. So since you were at YWCA for 10 years in El Paso, what lessons did you learn as the executive director of YWCA that you took with you to Gulf Coast JFCS? 
You know, I would say that this goes back to that softer side. One unique thing about the YWCA is its women's governance structure and that there's an all women's board. And again, because I think I can be somewhat intense, I can be very serious and I'm all about business, you know, in the meeting. And I didn't show the softer side of me unless you really got to know me. And if you really got to know me, then it's like, oh, wow, Sandra's a lot of fun and she's got a great sense of humor. But people didn't generally see that. And, and I think that that made it challenging sometimes because maybe that intense nature wasn't warm. It's just matter of fact. And so in coming into this role, like I said, it's been a whole transformation of this you know, you don't have to hold all of this, you know, so close to the vest that your that your mom had schizophrenia, or that you grew up, you know, so poor, or that you were in foster care, you know, all of these things that, you know, in my mind, that's personal. It's so personal. I don't talk and I don't mix my my business, you know, with my personal self. But the truth of the matter is we bring our whole self to the job. And if I'm bringing my whole self and people are like, God, we love Sandra. We just wish we could spend more time and get to know her. And, and it was that getting to know. So I've, I've learned to show who I am, to show up with my whole self, to show up with my sense of humor, to show up with my, you know, craziness, you know, that pops into my head, the funniest, funniest things. And, and I'm never going to say something inappropriate. Right. But when I, when I have that, that crazy sense of humor, because it really is there and I just share it and everyone breaks out laughing. It's like, that's who I am. But I didn't show that uh, to many people because of this world where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm African-American and I'm representing this, you know, white organization. So I've got to be so straight and narrow because I don't want anyone to misunderstand, you know, that I'm professional and that I'm this and that I'm that. But the truth of the matter is you bring your whole self and you need to bring your whole self. And so I learned to relax and I've showed, shown my talent. I love to sing. I've always loved to sing, but nobody at the YWCA, unless they saw me out at some rare, obscure thing, mm -hmm. you know, saw me sing. You know, I want well, to sing the national anthem, but here I was like, hey, you know, I'm singing with a band and the band is playing at, you know, our fundraiser. <laughs> and it's, it's just bring your whole self. It's letting people see who you are. So I'm happy. And, uh, and I think the folks who know me have a, a better appreciation for, yes, I'm running a large organization and yes, I'm intense, but I also can play and have a good time and let my hair down. I really appreciate your openness with sharing that. I really do because sometimes as African-American women, we are, you know, we, we have to, we have this mindset that we have to make sure that we are a certain way. But I will tell you the one thing that helped me 
to relax also as, as a black woman. And that was going through uh, another leadership experience, Courageous Conversations, uh, which is all about, you know, uh, having conversations about uh, race and being able to talk about race wherever people are, meeting people where they are and sharing your experience. And in one such session, uh, there was uh, this uh, African-American lady that was paired with me one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, with another, uh, it was actually not one-on-one, -on -one. it was a group of about four and we each had to do something, uh, or talk about an experience. And she was a therapist. I didn't know she was a therapist, but I got so emotional because she was like, why do you feel like you have to have the weight of the world on your shoulder? Because I was like, because I've, I'm the only African-American woman in this position, I'm representing the future of black women all over America. And I don't want you know, white people to think that they can't hire a black woman. And so I'm carrying all of this weight to be this perfect, you know, and she's like, who told you that you have to represent all of black women in America? And I was like, nobody, nobody. And so I think that we put this pressure on ourselves and it's real, the pressure is real, but I think we're not representing the every black woman in America. You know, we, we've got to do a job for ourselves and for our board and for the community that we serve. And beyond that, we can support and we can mentor, but I shouldn't be so stiff, you know, because I'm carrying the weight of black America on my shoulder because no one else has been in this position. Hmm. So I'm getting ready to be, um, and this is kind of cool, um, because as leaders, you know, we look for leaders to serve on our board and we as leaders have to also serve the community and we have to be connected in the business community. Uh, but just last week, um, I was uh, voted to be chair elect of the St. Petersburg Chamber of Commerce and so in its 120 year history, I will be the third woman and the first African-American woman to lead that organization. And, and I can do that comfortably. And I don't feel like I'm carrying the weight of black women in the whole world on my shoulder. I'm, I'm showing up who I am as who I am. And they've invited me who I, as who I am, because I'm showing them my whole self and I'm bringing my whole self. And so it's important. Well, congratulations. And I can't Thanks. wait to see the changes. I'm sure you'll show it on your Facebook or your LinkedIn um, that you, you guys are going to implement. And I'm so excited that you have, you know, I, I never knew about the Sandra, I only knew you as director of the BCA, which, you know, you were you're very nice and you're, to me, you were personal, but I really thank you for sharing that because that will help, this will release a lot of people from having the whole, you know, I gotta be perfect. 
Yes. As an African-American woman, because the position that I am in as a GS, I am the only black person that has ever had that job. So mm -hmm. I totally understand you, you know, maybe not to the, the level of run a $35 million, you know, agency, but I definitely understand we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we don't, we don't want to make mistakes right. and we don't want to bring her. We don't want people to say, well, you know, why is she acting like that? And I like to have fun too. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like I said, I can't sing, but you know, maybe I might dance a little bit, but yeah. thank you for sharing that in the courageous conversations. I want to know more about that, you know, as well. So that, you know, maybe I can share to be share more of my time as an African-American. So we'll have to get that after the show about courageous conversations. Yeah. Um, where can our listeners reach reach out to the Gulf Coast JFCS to donate and to learn more about the organization? We have a very easy website, uh, www, which of course is there, gcjfcs.org. So if you think Gulf Coast Jewish Family and Community Services, it's gcjfcs.org. And what, if you don't mind sharing, or maybe not, what is going to be the title of your memoir? You know, I have um, gone around and around and around with this for years, and it might change, but I am, what keeps coming back is in the crowd. In the kind of, kind of just interesting, in the crowd. In the crowd. So when... Do we have a date or sometime in mind when it's going to be released or? You know, I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I feel like, uh, this book is happening, you know, in, in God's time. Right. And I put as much time as I can into it. But now as I, I get here toward the end of 2020, I really do see the end of it. I lost my mom, uh, to COVID in April of this year. Oh, and sorry to hear that. Uh, a lot of my memoir is about my experience growing up um, uh, in poverty uh, with uh, my mom who, um, who was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia from a very young age. And so the, the whole um, aspect of mental health and living uh, in and amongst that and the influence of that. Uh, so that has really accelerated uh, my conclusion because I, I feel like it was in, in God's timing. And so uh, where I am right now is going through uh, the, the fourth version, which is really dropping in a few illustrations, uh, some things that, um, that, that uh, speak to the story itself in specific places. And I am, uh, I am currently exploring uh, publishing and how I want to do that. I would love to find an agent uh, to, to do that. Um, I really don't want to self-publish, uh, but I also want to make sure that, that this, uh, this memoir is true to its purpose. Wow. So. I'm sorry to hear about your mom passing away, Dr. Brown. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're, 
we as a community of African-Americans, we're experiencing this at uh, alarming rates and, and dying from it uh, at alarming rates compared to the general public. And that's why I think it's so important that, that we recognize that this is a, a serious matter and that we impress upon colleagues who don't want to wear masks, who, you know, may say, well, you know, it's really not that, you know, deadly. Well, it is if you're black. And I just say it because yeah. I think it's important that we not hide uh, behind the truth yeah. because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or we don't want to debate, you know, or, or make something political. It's just, it's killing us. And, it really is. It is. And that's a fact. And our final question, in your own words, what is community to you? Wow, community to me is, um, gosh, it's everyone that, that you touch. Community is, is comprised of all the people who live in a neighborhood, whether they're poor, whether they're rich, all genders and sexual orientation, religions. The community is donors. My community is my employees as well uh, and my colleagues. The community are those that maybe you don't even know about, but they're paying attention to you. They're paying attention to your organization. And there are people out there who hear your voice, who have need. Uh, you don't even know they exist, but that's your community as well. Um, so I think uh, the community is comprised of, of everyone. Um, it's not just the people that I know and the people that I see or just the people that I serve. Um, if anything, it's in discovering community where you're going beyond that that, that you know to see what you're missing. And that's your community. Thank you, Dr. Bram, for sharing your about Gov Coast, but also for sharing of yourself on the podcast. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really, it's been fun uh, reconnecting and, and just, you know, I get to see your face, <laughs> but yes. it's been great. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Join me each week to learn about a nonprofit's journey by subscribing to Talking Nonprofit wherever you receive your podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, if you have any questions or would like to be featured on the show, send a note via the contact form on our website. Until next time, be the difference.